You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome once again to Understanding Sin and Evil. In this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the scripture and the status of scripture and the biblical texts during the Second Temple period. Now, in this I'm going to really not talk that much about sin and evil, but it's very important for the text that we're talking about. And I'm going to also address some of the questions that have come up about what is canonization, what were the biblical books, what does it even mean to be a biblical book in the Second Temple period. So first of all, just some kind of facts on the ground. At Qumran, we have evidence of different biblical manuscripts. Now, why is this important? One of the important findings at Qumran are the earliest biblical scrolls that we have. Now, we can date texts to earlier. In other words, we can say something was composed earlier than the Second Temple period, but the earliest written examples of the te these texts, these are the earliest dated manuscripts of these biblical scrolls. Now, it's important to note uh, a couple of things. First of all, that at Qumran, famously, we have fragments of every biblical scroll except for the scroll of Esther which is hardly a surprise because it's not the sort of holiday, Purim is not the sort of holiday that people at Qumran would have particularly celebrated. We do know that there was some kind of Purim celebrated during the Second Temple period if, because if you've heard my lecture on First and Second Maccabees, we know that in Second Maccabees, which is written during the Second Temple period, it talks about the day of Mordechai, which is what it calls Purim. But coming back to our topic, so what we know is we know that these were biblical books. They existed in numerous copies at Qumran. We also see that they seem to, uh, and this is important for uh, Bible critics, that they seem to essentially resemble their final form, as it were, already in the Second Temple period at Qumran. And perhaps final form is really not the right term to use. What I mean is that the books resemble the form that we have them in today, not a very different looking book the way the hypothesized sources in source criticism would look. So, for example, if you have Bible critics who are talking about, who use source criticism and they talk about J and E and P and D, by the way, biblical critics speak less about sources in that in quite that way. Not all Bible critics now agree on the existence of these sources, but you don't have a source J at Qumran or a source E at Qumran. What we do have is we have these complete books for the most part. Not only that, but we actually can see already the order of the Pentateuch, and we can see that is the order of the five books of Moses, and we can also see the collection, for example, of the twelve minor prophets. These books were famously put together because they were so short. Um, and we already see collections of the twelve minor prophets at Qumran. So it's actually very interesting how there's already this process of canonization. What do I mean when I say canonization? What I really mean when I say canonization is the process through which books become authoritative. Notice these books are considered important, they're considered holy, they're considered worthy of being quoted. Now, are only the books of the Bible worthy of being quoted? Clearly not, not not for all Jews. There are, uh, at Qumran, they quote Jubilees as absolutely an authoritative work. Um, outside of Qumran, in the Talmud, Ben Sira is quoted as a, an authoritative work. The early church fathers, of course, quoted, uh, much later, quoted Enoch as an authoritative work. However, it's already clear that there are certain books that were considered authoritative. Now, what makes a book authoritative? 
And that's where we start seeing a difference. For example, and I've spoken about this um, again in the in my in my lectures on the, on First and Second Maccabees and elsewhere about the different collections that we have. What we call the Hebrew Bible, what we call uh, the Septuagint, uh, those represent different collections. We can even say what 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 is the Sumerian Bible? The Sumerian Bible is much more restrictive than the Hebrew Bible. The Sumerian Bible essentially includes the five books of the Pentateuch. I know that at least um, one scholar believes that the reason that this is so is because Jerusalem only becomes prominent in the books of the prophets, whereas in the Pentateuch it's just called the place that God will choose. So the the Samaritans who have as kind of a base belief that Jerusalem is not the chosen uh, place for the temple, Har Grizim, the Mount of Grizim, is the important location of the temple. They naturally rejected books where the where the Jerusalem temple stood at their center, or which emphasized the importance of the Jerusalem temple. However, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Judean, we, what we can call the Judean Bible, what became the Bible of the Jews after the destruction of the Second Temple, not that these books didn't exist, but which kind of became the official Bible of the Jews who survived, that Hebrew Bible essentially has as its unifying principle that these books were considered somehow holy, both authoritative and holy. And in order for a book to be holy, it had to have some kind of a prophetic spirit in it. And that's what's called in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, which means literally the Holy Spirit. But when, when Jews use that term to talk about the books of the Bible, what they mean is that it had some kind of prophetic spirit, even if it wasn't pure prophecy. The prophetic books are considered pure prophecy. But then you have what's called the books of the writings. So, for example, Daniel's in the books of the writings, Psalms, um, Kohelet, Proverbs, Mishlei. Those are books in the writings, and those are considered to have something of a prophetic spirit in them. Now, classically, according to Jewish tradition, prophecy ends at Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Chagai, um, in English you would say Zechariah and Malachi. Um, those three prophets who prophesy at the very beginning of the Second Temple period are supposed to end prophecy. So what that means in terms of the Judean Bible is if a book is clearly written after the return to Zion, in other words, after the very beginning of the Second Temple period, that book cannot be prophetic in any way, and therefore it's not included in the Judean Bible. Okay, this is something that we can tell really by just looking back. I mean, this is this is something that the the belief that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi end prophecy is something that we find in Jewish tradition, but that this is kind of a way of distinguishing between books that make it in and books that don't, we can see just by looking at the collection. And we can see it in particular by comparing the Hebrew Bible, the Judean Bible, which becomes the Masoretic Bible, which is the Bible according to the Masora. I'm going to talk a, a little bit more about that later. Um, with the Alexandrian Bible, which is translated into Greek and becomes the Septuagint. The Septuagint includes books that were Jewish books, but were not included in the Judean Bible and weren't necessarily rejected by Judeans. They simply weren't considered holy enough to include in the Hebrew Bible. And frequently when we look at them, we can say, ah, the reason these weren't included in the Hebrew Bible is because they were clearly, clearly written after the time of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And one of the best examples, or perhaps the best example of this, is the book of Ben Sirah. Because in the book of Ben Sirah, as I said, in the Talmud, the book of Ben Sirah is actually cited as an authoritative work. And yet it's not part of the Bible. Well, why not? Well, we know when Ben Sirah lived. And his grandson was the person who translated the book, and he says when Ben Sirah lived. Ben Sirah lived uh, essentially during the Ptolemaic period. So that was well after the return to Zion. 
So it could not have had that spirit of prophecy, which for the Judean Bible was crucial to be included in the biblical books. So in that case, if in the, if the Alexandrian Jews, which was, it was a very prominent Jewish community, it was an educated Jewish community, and yet it was not a Hebrew-speaking Jewish community, what 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 decided them on keeping something in their Bible? And usually it's something that has religious content, uh, perhaps a good moral, good morals. It doesn't, most of their books or almost all of their books don't present any sort of real problem with uh, Jewish traditions, with what became standard rabbinic Jewish traditions. Some of them more and some less, but there's nothing like Jubilees or Enoch there where it goes really head to head with what became standard Jewish practice or what was already standard Jewish practice. Uh, it doesn't have super crazy books in terms of the law, um, even though it has some particularly strange books in terms of the stories that they include, but books that have kind of a religious, moral or religious meaning and are important in some way from a Jewish perspective. First and Second Maccabees, for example, tell very important pieces of uh, of the story of the Hasmonean revolt. And it's, nat it's natural that they would have kept it, as well as, of course, explaining the holiday of Hanukkah. Um, and, and so it was natural that it would have been kept within the Alexandrian Bible because they weren't being as strict. They weren't saying this must have this kind of flavor of prophecy in it. Or perhaps they did feel that these books had some kind of holiness or spirit of prophecy in them and they were not as strict in saying that prophecy absolutely ended with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malach. But we still have a question about Qumran in terms of what books they kept and their attitude toward prophecy. At Qumran, did they think prophecy continued? Did they um, think that prophecy continued and was current in their time? It's hard to say. Uh, Alex Jason has written a book about this, and apparently while at Qumran they continued with practices that we would call prophecy, uh, they did not call it prophecy and, in fact, only used the term prophecy when describing the false prophecy of other groups. So there seems to be some kind of understanding that you cannot call something prophecy after, you know, perhaps after the return to Zion. In other words, it seems to go along with that tradition of there not being prophecy after Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And yet, what we've seen is that there are many other books kind of floating around and being included and being considered authoritative and being copied over during the Second Temple period. Now, not only are there more books that there, and not as much of a consensus as to is a certain book authoritative or not. As, as we might have now in modern in modern times. In general, within Judaism, uh, you usually will have kind of an agreement of what's in the Bible, correct? In the same way as you'll have, um, well, you'll have within Catholic Christianity an agreement of what's in the Bible, and within Protestant Christianity an agreement of what's in the Bible in general. And that's a whole other story in terms of what actually uh, what's considered biblical. The reason that the uh, Protestant Bible is has fewer books than the Catholic Bible is because, of course, when the, the Catholic Bible is based on the Septuagint, essentially, the books that were included in the Septuagint, plus the New Testament, because that, that Greek version was what was taken when, when, kind, of the, when the, um, kind of the story of Jesus was being, as it were, sold around the Mediterranean to, uh, to new converts, whereas um, when with the Protestant Reformation and the idea that if a book is Jewish and yet it's not in the Hebrew Bible, it's clearly apocryphal, right? It's clearly not true. It's not. It's not the real Bible. So let's take it out. And so those those books, which are now called, uh, let's say, intertestamental literature, that's one of the names for them. Um, they were they were taken out of the standard uh, Christian Protestant Bible. At the same time, then you had books like Enoch, which the church fathers read, or at least some of them read and considered authoritative, but most people apparently did not consider it particularly authoritative, ex unless you were a member of the Ethiopian church. Or Jubilees, which similarly 
had a certain amount of uh, play, you could say, in the beginning, but was only really continued to be considered authoritative and holy by the Ethiopian church. And that's how we have it today. Now, there were other books for example, that were maintained by the Armenian church. Um, but these books, uh, so then when you have different canons, right? By the way, where does the word canon come from? It comes from the Greek word for read, right? If you think of a reed being used as a ruler, it's the measure of what makes it in. Uh, many of our words uh, that have to do with important books and even things like deciding whether what text is original comes from uh, comes from the Greek because the Greeks were very involved even with the works of Homer they were very involved in trying to decide what was the original Homer they had different copies and what's what's the correct copy uh, and then uh, modern scholars take on some of the things that Greeks learned, or, or even or not even modern scholars, much earlier scholars, took on those uh, rules to try and decide what is in fact the original text. So if we're talking about the original text of something, so what is the original text of the Bible? And this is where we get into difficulties that particularly arise when we look at the Second Temple period and texts in the Second Temple period. Let me say something before I even start about that. Let's talk a little bit about what does it mean for something to be canonical? What does it mean for something to be in the canon? And this is where we actually find a difference between Jewish understanding of a canonical work and Christian understanding of canonical work. And in fact, um, when I started my PhD, and it actually uh, took me a while to understand this, uh, I, I didn't understand there's a, there's a very well-known scroll in the Dead Sea in, at Qumran called the Psalms Scroll. And it has the Psalms in a different order than we have them in the Masoretic Text. And it also has Psalms that we do not have in the Masoretic text. Some of them are in Syriac, some of them are not, at least one of them is not. The Christian scholars would say, oh, the Psalms, as they are in the Masoretic text, are not, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't closed. The Psalms, Psalms as a collection was not, was not closed. It wasn't quite canonical, or it was much more fluid, whereas Jewish scholars were kind of like, well, so big deal. You have a different collection of Psalms in a different order. Who cares? Not exactly, I'm exaggerating, obviously. But this has to do with uh, different ideas of what it means to be canonical and what makes something canonical. In Judaism, what made something canonical, and I think you already get the sense of some of the things the sense from some of the things I'm saying, was a process. Yes, I know that in the Talmud it describes what books got in and what books did not. But you will note that in the same uh, text in the Talmud, it talks about how one scholar says, I will take the book of Ezekiel and I will not come back until I have solved all of the problems that the book of Ezekiel presents in terms of certain contradictions it had with the rest of the canon. Now, the fact that someone said, I'm going to take Ezekiel and I'm going to solve these problems, meant that everyone knew that the book of Ezekiel is in. The book of Ezekiel is in the collection, period. You just have to solve the problems. By the time we get to the end of the Second Temple period, at least in Judea, it seems pretty clear that people know what is in and what is out. Or really, to be more precise, they know what is in. In other words, there are some books that are so, as it were, universally considered holy that they must be part of the canon by the end of the Second Temple period. There are some books that are kind of either on the borderline or, like Jubilees and Enoch, certain, certain Jewish groups think that they're holy, but those Jewish groups are either not large enough to have an effect after the Second Temple falls, or those Jewish or those particular Jewish groups are too far from the uh, from the ideology that wins the day when, once the temple falls. There are certain books that people, everyone agrees they are truly holy. Now, the Song of Songs, it sounds like there was a legitimate um, uh, disagreement. Right? Because the Song of Songs, on the face of it, is, is love poetry. Period. Unless, unless you read it in this allegorical way, which has become the traditional way to read it within 
Judaism, it's love poetry. And so you need, there was, there must have been an argument, and we see that argument reflected in the Talmud, and in, in the Talmud of discussion. There must have been an argument about should this book get in or not. And yet, it, uh, clearly it was already important enough to, to make it in. And while you might hear people talking about the Council of Yavna as some kind of council that decided what books were in and what books were not, there really is absolutely no proof of the Council of Yavna, not even in terms of Jewish texts. The Council of Yavna was not like the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was where in the Christian, in Christian history, were certain rules of Christian theology were set. And the reason you had the Council of Nicaea was because Christianity had then become the official religion of the Roman Empire. So Emperor Constantine said, that's it. If it's the official religion, you darn well have to decide what's going to be in. What is this religion if it's the official religion? Right? You can't be all fluky-mooky with an official religion. Right? So you had the council that decided these are the heresies, right? these are the things that are not acceptable, and these are the beliefs that are mainstream that are acceptable. Now, in Judaism, there was never a single council like that. Yes, at times there was some kind of governing body, a Sanhedrin, or something of that of that kind, that um, or or um, in Jewish tradition we talk about Anshe Knesset Hagdola, some kind of members of a of a kind of a committee that try to set certain practices and um, and made certain decisions and probably there was absolutely after the destruction of the second temple an attempt to say these are the holy books because when you scatter you it's not too easy to keep copies they're not easy to copy, they're not easy to maintain, and they're not easy to carry with you, and you have to decide what are the holy books. And yet there wasn't a single, and, and yet there didn't seem to have been this single one overriding, it's got to be in this order, it's got to be like this. There was, it was already, there was already a process, particularly in Judea, there was already a process of kind of winnowing out, this book is kind of weird, that book's kind of strange, most of the Jews aren't keeping it, and one, when, this, when the second temple is destroyed, you have the, um, you have the Bible. There's already, before the second temple is destroyed, there's already an idea of the tripartite Bible, namely that there's the Pentateuch, there's the prophets, and there are the writings. There's an idea of which are the holy books, the number of the holy books, there's like a general idea. And, in fact, we have those books maintained. And, in fact, at Qumran, we could even see in terms of the number of copies that are maintained, that there's already an idea of these are the holier books that actually matches what becomes the Judean Bible. So I'm going to repeat this just because it's confusing for a lot of people. In Judaism, the Bible is actually the Bible in terms of a collection of holy books that is generally accepted, even though there are some outliers. It's generally accepted already towards the end of the Second Temple period in Judea. There is not a single council that has to say these books are in and these books are out. What happens with the destruction of the Second Temple is perhaps there was some kind of group that decided, but also it could have simply been that there was already something of a consensus, and the books that were considered to be holy and to have a prophetic vision within them were the books that were copied. This is in direct contrast to the Christian tradition, which had the Council of Nicaea that decided on the holy books and the basic beliefs of Christianity. And that's also that also comes up a lot when people say, well, what are what's the theological basis of Judaism? What do all what must all Jews believe to be Jews? In other words, it it's the same sort of thing. The Second Temple period, everyone just kind of knew what Jews believed, and mainly what Jews did. Jews believed in a God you couldn't see. Jews kept Shabbat, right? They kept circumcision. They kept some kind of purity law. They kept some kind of kashrut laws. 
they would not worship either idols or the emperor, and if you tried to make them, they tended to revolt. And everyone knew it. And all the Jews knew it. And they were Jews. We don't really start seeing these lists of theological beliefs that a Jew must believe until the medieval period. And that is at least partly in, um, in response to similar lists that were not only popular in Christianity, but also in Islam. And as a result, uh, Jewish leaders, who are also leading Jewish thinkers, put together these lists. And yet, these lists, in a way, weren't even necessary. These were simply trying to codify what Jews already, supposedly, believed. Now, of course, again, there are other books, like those in the Septuagint, um, that are not copied over because they don't make it into the Judean Bible. However, there isn't this the same strictness, and we see that there isn't the same strictness because, again, in the Talmud, people are still reading Ben Sira, right? And Ben Sira didn't make it in, right? But they, there's still this feeling that it's it's important. And in fact, if you read the book of Ben Sira, it really does read like something that's in between the Bible and the Mishnah. It, it reads like it, it fits very nicely into that slot. So that a lot of times when Jewish scholars and Christian scholars start arguing about canon, they're actually using the word differently. The, the Jewish scholars are using it in a much looser way, as something that kind of eventually developed, and Christians are using it in a much more clear-cut way, as something that was decided by a central body, period. Now, uh, Gene Ulrich wrote a very good article really outlining the differences between Christian scholars and Jewish scholars when they talk about canon. So it's not like, oh, this is uh, my invention or no one noticed this. I will uh, find the reference for you and I'll put it in the in the blog post if you're interested in accessing it, but it is an academic article, so it's not that easy to come by. When we talk about texts of the Bible, though, there are some slight differences. Now, again, in general, even at Qumran, we see that the Bible has pretty much the form it has today. It has the form it has today. The text is not very different. Um, now, not I should say it's not more different than what we already knew in comparing, say, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. You say, why do you keep calling the Hebrew Bible the Masoretic text? Okay, the the Masoretes, and, and the, the name Masoretes comes from the, mis, um, the Mesora, the Mesora, the tradition, the kind of handing over of the biblical text in the 5th and 6th centuries in the land of Israel, more or less. Uh, there were groups of rabbis whose major life work was essentially deciding exactly, exactly what the text of the Hebrew Bible should be, exactly how the words should be pronounced, exactly how the words should be spelled, even if they were pronounced the same way, exactly where the pauses should be. Okay, was decided in this period. I shouldn't say decided. It had been passed down. Right? There were traditions. This was when they wrote them down. And also when you had differing traditions, that there, was a there were decisions made, how, um, how do we vocalize these words? Now, I just want to remind you that a Torah, when the Torah is written, of course, the Torah is written without punctuation. Okay? The only punctuation that a written Torah has are kind of paragraph spaces, blank spaces that you could say kind of divide paragraphs. Or sometimes they indicate actually some missing text. But there's absolutely no punctuation. So it was in this time when there was punctuation and vocalization, the vowels. And in fact, there were two different traditions of writing vowels. The... the um, Tiberian tradition and the Babylonian tradition and we kept the tri Tiberian tradition which actually has a wider range of vowels or I should say a more specific range of vowels so it's in this time that we actually have books and I mean a book not a scroll that's a, a codex is a book and so this is when we actually see the books of the Bible 
written in Hebrew with vocalization and marks and punctuation marks that show how the Bible should be read. Now, just to give you an idea of how precise, oh, not just read, but also spelled. In other words, should a should this be spelled with a vav here or without a vav, even if you're reading it the same way? We also have the traditions of reading something when you read it differently than what is actually written, which is called kriuchtiv, when what's written is one word and what's read is a different word. And of class, of course, the most classic kriuchtiv is the name of God, because you do not pronounce the name of God as it's written. Instead, you pronounce a substitute. So that's a classic example of kriuchtiv. So just to give you an example, again, of how precise this is, and this is 5th to 6th century CE, so it's long, long, long after Qumran and long after the destruction of the temple, what you see, uh, for example, in two different schools of, of these masteries, and it's, it's a real argument, is how, when you have a preposition in front of the word, for example, Yerushalayim, do you say, Le Yerushalayim, excuse my American, I'm using an American accent right now. Le Yerushalayim, or do you say Le Yerushalayim? Okay, do you pronounce the Yod, Le Yerushalayim, or do you say Le Yerushalayim without pronouncing the Yod, because the Yod becomes part of the preceding vowel, the Chirik, the E. And the school that we went with doesn't pronounce the Yod. So you say Le Yerushalayim, like that. This these are two different schools of vocalization. Okay, That's how precise they were in the time of the Masoretes. So when we say Masoretic Bible, we mean the Bible as according to the Masoretes. Now one of the things that the Masoretes tried to do was they tried to make sure that it was one unified version of the written Bible that would be exact spelled a specific way, vocalized a specific way, and they wanted to make sure that you didn't have five different versions of the Bible floating around. And this was according to a precisely memorized tradition regarding both the reading of the Bible, in other words, how it was to be pronounced, and also regarding the writing of the Bible, how each word was to be spelled. Now, I want to emphasize here that the goal was not consistency of spelling throughout the Bible. The goal was to maintain a tradition of writing the Bible. So if there was a tradition that a word was spelled with a vav only once in the entire Bible, and it was in such and such a verse, that was part of the Masoretic text, and it was part of what the Masoretes wrote down. The point was not, let's make everything consistent. On the contrary, it was, let's preserve this tradition precisely. Now, the point that we're at the Masoretes, they don't have, they don't seem to have texts that are hugely different, but we can be pretty sure that there were at least some different texts. We have some evidence of slightly different texts floating around in medieval times, and not only in medieval times, but before medieval times. In the Talmud, there are times when the Talmud is speaking about the certain spelling of a word, and that's not the way the word is spelled in the Masoretic Bible. I'd like to remind you, the Masoretic Bible was really determined in the area mainly of Tiberias, in, <clears throat> in the area of northern Israel. Whereas the Talmud, the main Talmud that uh, we learned today, there was, there was a, a Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud, but there was also the Babylonian Talmud. Now that's the main Talmud. That's the bigger Talmud. That's the more thorough Talmud that we learn today, usually. Um, and the Babylonian Talmud is being uh, written down and redacted and edited and compiled quite far from where the Masoretes are doing their work. So it's not that surprising, actually, that they might have a version of the Bible which is where a word is spelled differently. And that's really what we're talking about. That's the, kind of, that's the level of difference that I'm talking about, that a word is spelled differently than what you have in the Masoretic Bible. But today... Jewish Bibles, Hebrew Bibles, rely on the Masoretic Bible. Again, these Masoretes who, who dedicated their lives 
to making sure that Torah scrolls and not just the not just the Pentateuch, also the prophets and the writings, that they were precise in terms of their spelling and their pronunciation, including traditions where you simply say a different word than what's written in the text. And that's a whole that's the topic of a whole different lecture. Trust me on this one. However, when we're in the Second Temple period, we have a wide range of biblical texts. We have, uh, if we're looking at Qumran, we can find the Hebrew texts which are closer to what becomes the base text of the Septuagint. We can find Hebrew texts which are closer to what becomes the base text of the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, that what I mean is before the changes that happened to the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch has uh, certain changes to the Bible that are specific to the Samaritan community, namely, uh, you know, there's an added commandment that you need to sacrifice in Hargrizim, right? Things like that. Uh, but there's a text before that. They took a base text, which was also different from the Masoretic text. Um, and so we find, and we also find evidence of texts that don't easily fall into any of these categories. They don't, they aren't close to this, the proto-Septuagint text. They're not close to the proto-Samaritan text. They're not close to the proto-Masoretic text. They, they reflect some other kind of, uh, some other, um, type of text. Now, again, the differences are frequently on the level of a, a, a word. You know, there's a word different. Um, it's usually not a huge difference, and uh, the majority of the texts found at Qumran were closer, th I shouldn't say the majority, the largest group, if we group them in terms of Proto-Samaritan, Proto-Septuagint, uh, some other Qumran category, and Proto-Masoretic, the largest group is Proto-Masoretic. So, um, you could say just quantity-wise, there seems to be a preference for texts that are closest to what we have in the Hebrew Bible today. However, there are certainly texts that showed um, show other traditions. Uh, in general, and I'm making a real generalization here, and here there's an argument um, between two scholars. Uh, Emmanuel Tov does the division that I just it makes the division that I just made in terms of uh, proto-Septuagint, proto-Samaritan, uh, proto-Masoretic, and miscellaneous Qumran. Uh, Gene Ulrich argues with that idea. He says you can't just make these kind of blanket um, categorizations. You have to look at each book in its own merits. In certain cases, the Masoretic version will be the earlier one, and some of the Septuagint version will be the earlier one. Uh, the Septuagint is not completely consistent. It might have an earlier version here, a later version there. He takes a very, say, a granular look at the different uh, biblical texts. Uh, but in general, what we see is, and I, again, I'm going to make a gross generalization here. There is a tendency among um, the proto in the Proto-Septuagint text, but particularly in, let's say, the Proto-Samaritan text, to fix problems in the scripture. And I've mentioned this before. What makes something scripture? What, what, what does it mean when we consider something to be scripture? One of the things it usually means, or even if we consider something to be canonical, it, it today in the modern period, it's a little bit different because I can write a book called, you know, Two Nights Among the Tulips, and it could just be complete garbage, and I sign my name, Miriam Brand, on it, and someone else takes it and says, oh, I, I, I took that book, but I fixed it. I, I changed, you know, three paragraphs, I took out five more, without telling Miriam. But it's still the same book, and you'll say, no, it's not, because you messed with it without asking Miriam for her permission. If you were her editor, then fine. But since uh, you just took it, now it's a different book. It's now two um, nights among the tulips, uh, written by Miriam and abridged by you. Right? And that's what we expect in the modern period with the printing press and with the internet and where it's so easy to just keep track of changes that we expect everyone to say what they've done. But certainly in uh, in earlier times, if you said, um, well, let's let's take an example where actually this wasn't true. Normally we would say, okay, if you have a Bible and I go in and I say, well, you know, but this doesn't make sense. So I'm going to take out that verse and I'm going to add this other verse. And this verse, I'm going to change the ending. You'd be like, what are you doing? You can't do that. Right? You're not allowed to do that. That's the Bible. Now what you've done is you, you've messed up the Bible. You can't do that. 
right? Uh, one classic person who did exactly that, of course, was in the Jefferson Bible. If you don't know what the Jefferson Bible is, right? Thomas Jefferson took out all the um, everything he didn't like in the New Testament. I, I don't know if he really did stuff with the Hebrew Bible. He took things out of the New Testament and he kind of kept in all the moral precepts and that's the Jefferson Bible. If you want to read kind of like an abridged Bible with just like all sorts of moral dicta, right? That's the Jefferson Bible. But that's not the Bible, right? And in general, if someone would start kind of messing with the Bible, you get a lot of people upset. People say that, no, that's not, that you can't do that. And in fact, what, what would you do? What would you do if you read a verse and it presents a moral problem? Or what we saw, in fact, when we, I was talking in my podcast, we talked about the Watcher story. And then I looked at the comments, and this is not surprising. I mean, I, I do this myself, right? Comments where people were struggling with this idea of how can you say that divine beings mated with human women? Well, what if we say... Right, and this is one of the comment the commentaries. Well, wh- how, so what could we say about the divine beings? And then we talked about the different um, different um, traditions of interpretation of who the Benel or him were. They weren't divine beings. They were this kind of man. They were that kind of man. And I saw it also in the comments where other people were coming up with different ideas. Well, could we say that the that the Benel or him were this other type of person? That's exactly what we do when a Bible verse presents a problem, whether it's a moral problem or a logical problem, we don't take out the words, you know, B'nai Elohim. We don't take out the words, B'not Adam, you know, daughters of man. We don't take the words out. We say, how can we understand this differently? How can we understand this verse differently in a way that works with our current understanding and beliefs? That is what we do with something that is canonical. That is what we do with something that is scripture. That's what we do when you can't change the words anymore and you can't throw it out. It's important to us. It is holy to us. We can't just get rid of it. We can't say, I don't like it, so I'm just not going to listen. We need to continue putting it into our lives, and yet it needs to work with our current beliefs and our current understanding. That's when we get layers of interpretation. That's what we get, in fact, in the Second Temple period. We get it in Enoch, we get it in Jubilees, we get it all throughout Second Temple literature. We start seeing these layers of interpretation. But we see something else. Because scripture is not completely solidified yet. Okay, so what we see in these different versions of the Hebrew Bible are we see some people who are, and I think it's much earlier than Qumran, because you can see the way Qumran, the people of Qumran treat the biblical text is different. But what you do see is that before we get to Qumran, the, the texts that are preserved there, that's some different biblical texts, the Proto-Samaritan, Proto-Septuagint, they do take certain liberties in order to solve problems in the biblical text. So here's one example. Jacob, when Jacob's about to leave, when Yaakov is about to leave Lavan's household, and he tells his wives, he's explained to them how he managed to get all the spotted sheep, right? And, and, and walk off with a large percentage of his father-in-law's flock. Now, if we read the Bible, we remember that he did this thing with sticks and he had them look at the sticks while they were in heat. They went out to the water and then they all had spotted sheep. That's not what he tells his wives, though. He tells them that he had a dream. He had a dream that there were going to be all these spotted sheep. Now, if we read that, we might feel a little uncomfortable. We'll be like, well, you know, that's weird because he says he had a dream, but we didn't see he had a dream. We saw that he did that kind of trick with the sticks. So what does the Samaritan Bible do? They put in the dream. They put in the dream. He had the dream. They put it in where you would expect it to be. So that when he recites it to his wives, there's no, you don't feel uncomfortable. You're like, oh yeah, that dream. Right? Now you can say, well, um, what they, what did the editor of that text think he was doing? And probably he thought he was improving the text. He was making it easier. Clearly he had had the dream, right? So just put it in. What's the big deal? Okay. However, today we wouldn't do it, and I think at Kormon they also wouldn't do it. What would they do, though? 
they would retell the story of the Bible with the explanation baked in. So that's what we have in, for example, the book of Jubilees. So in the book of Jubilees, as opposed to having God tell Israel to borrow from the Egyptians without the intent of returning it, we have angels telling the Israelites to borrow and explaining to the Israelites that after all, these are wages that they are owed. So we have kind of a workaround for an ethical problem. On the one hand, God didn't tell them to do it. It was angels. In fact, the angels are a little bit worried later that Mastema, who's like kind of the satanic villain in Jubilees, that he's going to kind of snitch to God and get them and get the Israelites in trouble for doing it. Right. Um, so it's angels telling them, not God. And the angels explain that after all, these are wages earned. Now, we would probably have the same answer, and we do have the same answer, in fact, in, in interpretive traditions, saying how could the Israelites do this? And the answer is that it's wages earned, but that's not what's in the biblical text. right? So in Jubilees, it retells the whole story with that answer already in it. Right? There's Again, in the Bible, there's a scene where it seems like God is trying to kill Moses. And what saves Moses is that Zipporah very quickly circumcises her son. And it's not clear. The whole scene is very weird. It isn't clear what's going on. In Jubilees, Mastema tries to kill Moses. There's no divine attempt or apparent divine attempt on Moses' life. Problem solved. And there's no circumcision either in that scene. So this is what's called rewritten Bible. This is a retelling of the biblical story with the interpretation and the fix baked in. On the one hand, there isn't a distinction in these re retold stories. There is no distinction between the actual biblical story and what the interpretation is. On the other hand, the author is not actually meddling with the biblical text itself. Probably the closest example to something which is really uh, on the border is the Temple Scroll. The Temple Scroll actually takes verses of the Bible and kind of rearranges them into a whole new scroll, right? Some of it is straight verses, some of them are in different order, moved around, and that's as close as you can come to meddling with the Bible without meddling with the Bible. So I'm, I'm just going to repeat, kind of go over again what, what I was saying. We have different texts of the Bible that are evident evidence that at a certain point the, the text of the Bible is not so canonized that there aren't some, some people who are messing with it a little, who are trying to fix problems in the Bible, probably with the best of intentions. They just want to make it work better. They want to solve the ethical problems. And you know that Clearly, these ethical problems could not have happened because, I mean, it's the Bible, right? It's the Word of God. So they fixed it. No problem. Or they added to it. And we see that sometimes in the Septuagint. We see certain additions um, to the biblical book itself. And at a certain stage, though, already in the Second Temple period, it's already clear that you can't do that. You, you can't mess with, it, with the text. Not only that, but you want your text to be as faithful to what you think is the original as, as possible. In fact, we have some Qumran scrolls where someone wrote a verse wrong and then went back and corrected the verse. At the same time, we also see in Qumran places where the verse is quoted and is quoted a little wrong and in a way that works better with whatever the, the um, they're trying to prove. And also, we see a certain, um, and I've talked about this before, uh, um, a, a distancing from using God's name. So sometimes when a verse is quoted, they kind of downgrade God's name. Instead of using what you would say in English, Y-H-W-H, in Hebrew, if we're going to be traditional, you'd cave up gay, right? Uh, you, you, instead of using that name of God, it uses Aleph Lamed, right? The, the, the just kind of God instead of the Lord. Uh, and and in, even when they're quoting, when they quote a verse, not always, but sometimes they uh, they do that, and that I think is I kind of supposed to be understood that they don't want to just kind of take the name of the Lord in vain. They're not just going to copy the name of the Lord just just like that. But in general, what we see is, and and we've seen it, and I, I, this is a process, 
Okay, so there's one point at which there are at least some texts that show evidence that someone just kind of went in and fixed things in the text itself. Then at a certain point, that's clearly, it's, it's we could say, canonized enough that no one's going to do that. They're like, this is the Bible, you can't mess with it, that's the book, that's the real book. If you have a problem with it, there are two ways to solve it. You could either write an interpretation that solves it, and then we do have interpretations uh, in, like in Qumran, you have the Pesher, well, it's, it's a little bit different because the Pesher uh, interpretation at Qumran is where they quote a verse and then they explain how that verse is actually talking about them. Um, but in general, at, in, in the Second Temple period, and uh, the way that they would solve problems in the biblical text is by retelling the story with additions and interpretations or with omissions where they omit in the retelling of the story the problematic passage. And then you have kind of the interpretation mixed in. What becomes uh, later, what becomes standard later on is this attempt to keep the verse separate from its interpretation. So we have in Midrash, which is a rabbinic interpretation, you have a kind of, you have a quote of the verse and then the interpretation. And it's very clear where the verse beginning begins and ends, so that you should not confuse what is the the verse which has the holiness of the original text and the later interpretation, which again is supposed to uh, solve the problems of the text. Now again, I'd like to reemphasize that when, why do we even need interpretation? We only need these layers of interpretation when we're talking about books that A, are important to us, B, are old, they're not written now, so they don't necessarily obviously address the understanding and concerns that we have today, or they're not, they present problems that we have today that at one time people did not have with the text. And yet, and yet, these texts are still important. And at that time, that's when we start having the layers of interpretation. Layers upon layers of interpretation because these texts must re remain relevant on the one hand and on the other hand cannot change themselves. These texts can't change. They must remain relevant. How do we do that? We do that with interpretation. And that's why the Second Temple period is such an exciting time because we really start to see that interpretation develop in a major way. Anyway, I hope this is, um, I hope this answered some of your questions. It really was just kind of the tip of the iceberg when we're talking about scripture and canonization in the Second Temple period. You know, you can hear how excited this topic gets me to see how people dealt with some of the problems that we still deal with today in the Bible and the scripture is just amazing. And in the next episode, I promise, I will get back to Sin and Evil with a new mini-series, continuing the same idea, but we're going to be talking about uh, the Satan and Satanic figures from the Bible to the, through the Second Temple period. And we're going to talk a little bit about how and why that uh, um, that satanic figure becomes so central. Uh, hint, it has a little bit to do with Persian influence. Uh, since we're coming up on Purim, I thought I'd add that little comment. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you next time. Please keep your comments and questions coming. Thank you. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.